Welcome to the Gut Podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer in Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK. And in my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month, I'm discussing the Editor's Choice Manuscript from the January 2018 issue, entitled Critical Research Gaps and Recommendations to Inform Research Prioritisation for Effective Prevention and Improved Outcomes in Colorectal Cancer. And I'm delighted to welcome Professor Mark Lawler here today from the Centre for Cancer Research and Cell Biology at Queen's University in Belfast. So thanks for joining the podcast today, Mark. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. So your paper focuses on research prioritisation in the field of colorectal cancer. So why this clinical focus? Just remind us of the global burden of this malignancy and why more research is required in this area. Well, if you look at the recent data, globally about 2.2 million predicted new cases of colorectal cancer, 1.1 million deaths by 2030. From a European perspective, it's the second largest cancer killer after lung cancer. We focus specifically in the UK, over 41,000 new cases diagnosed in 2014, 16,000 deaths. So a significant both global and local challenge. But as well as that challenge in relation to health, there's also the economic perspective. So the global burden economically of colorectal cancer, nearly $100 billion in the US. Medical expenditure alone will be probably $20 billion by 2020. And in the UK, total economic costs exceed 1.6 billion. Their 2009 figures. We're actually doing a new study on that, which we're hoping to get out soon. So you can see from both the healthcare perspective, but also from the health economic perspective, it's a very uh, common disease and a very important disease. So hence the the focus. So your paper represents a consensus analysis and agreement from several key stakeholders in strategic areas for future research direction. Um, Can you tell us who was involved in creating this initiative and how these recommendation priority areas were formulated? Absolutely. Well, one of the things I'd like to do is very much congratulate Bell Cancer UK because they were the ones who actually both started but also drove this initiative uh, through what we call the Bile Cancer UK Critical Research Gaps in Colorectal Cancer Initiative, uh, brought together approximately 100 key stakeholders, and they would have been clinicians, other healthcare professionals, scientists, patients, people affected by colorectal cancer, including colorectal cancer carers. Uh, we set up a series of focus groups um, to try and identify what the key gaps were, uh, then a series of meetings to prioritize what the key research areas where and how we should address them and so and really did an iterative process to get down to the recommendations, the priority ones and then also the, the ones that were more related to infrastructure that we felt needed to be addressed. Uh, so it was quite a, a detailed, rigorous process and really the, everybody really made a great contribution to it which was brilliant, made my job easier. Eight priority research gaps were identified, and we'll talk through each of these in turn. So firstly, discovery science. This is the need for realistic models of disease to characterise the biological mechanisms of colorectal cancer development and progression. So what are the key issues in this priority area? I think that the main thing and the thing that's really important is that we need to have the right models uh, that actually recapitulate different stages of the disease. It's no use trying to study metastatic disease and then having a model that doesn't uh, recapitulate that or trying to look at early colorectal cancer and not having the appropriate model systems. So 
what we wanted to do is really suggest that you know, it's an absolute priority that in order to address different research questions, they need to be posed or addressed in the relative both genetic context, but also clinical context. And it allows you then to look at, you know, for example, key roles, interactions between the tumor and its microenvironment, if you have the right model system, and the increasingly relevant role of something like the microbiome. The second priority area is risk. How can we identify individuals at high risk of colorectal cancer on an individual and a population level? So tell us about the priority consensus points identified here. Yeah, Marie, I mean, this is a real challenge. Um, and it's an area that, you know, even you know, general perceptions of risk are, are quite difficult sometimes to get across. Uh, what we feel is really that by actually looking you know, across the, the world in relation to work being done in colorectal cancer research and risk, probably insufficient evidence of what are the really precise contributions of genetic factors, environmental factors, lifestyle on colorectal cancer, and, and particularly how do they interact with each other. And obviously some people are at more risk than others, so how do we define high-risk populations? Because that obviously has implications in relation to prevention, but also in relation to treatment as we move forward. So you just mentioned lifestyle, so let's move on to prevention. Um, the World Cancer Research Fund has suggested that approximately 45% of colorectal cancers are accountable by environmental lifestyle factors. So what are the focus points to inform strategies to impact colorectal cancer prior to disease onset? If you look in the UK, the National Cancer Research Institute funding for say 2015, 500 million uh, invested in all cancers in relation to research, but only 3% of that was on prevention. So I think one of the challenges in relation to prevention is we're not spending enough on it. And that's not unique to colorectal cancer, it's across the board. I think if we look at it though, in, in the context of colorectal cancer, we need to focus on uh, lifestyle factors, so dietary factors, obesity. Uh, lack of physical activity, alcohol consumption, uh, increasing realization, and a number of studies have now shown this of an association between body fatness and cancer risk. And this, you know, really is almost telling us in the context of colorectal cancer, uh, the data that's showing that increased BMI is, is associated with colorectal cancer risk could even support a preventative approach of calorific restriction, for example. Um, increased physical activity is another area which we feel has a very important role and which we identified as one of the key actions uh, to take in the context of prevention. Um, it's also clear, and I mean, I, I've mentioned the microbiome already once, and I'll mention it again, but it's, it's a really interesting area, but it seems to sort of be interacting in a lot of different ways. And if you think of it in the context of cancer prevention, you know, the sort of modulation of the diet and that having an effect on the microbiome or the metabolome uh, really could be a, a new and rather unique way of, of looking at cancer prevention approaches. Obviously, we have chemo prevention approaches as well, particularly in high-risk populations, you know, using aspirin, for example, and these can be very effective. And one of the other things I would say is probably we need to get the different groupings together. Uh, a lot more interdisciplinary collaboration, I think, would, would help us in relation to driving real-life preventative interventions in colorectal cancer. Well, colorectal cancer is targeted by a population-based screening programme, and these use differing assessment tools and interventions across many countries um, and successfully have impacted on the incidence of colorectal cancer. 
shifting intervention to the early stages of the disease. So what are the outstanding research gaps in this priority area? Yeah, I mean, we use colonoscopy a lot. We, we, we use um, fecal immunochemical tests, the fit tests for blood in the stool, for programmatic screening, uh, also flexible sigmoidoscopy. So there are a number of different approaches. I think one of the things we need, maybe need is to really refine, to develop risk adjustment algorithms that allow us to really see you know, what is the population risk, what, what are the approaches that we can actually use in this context in relation to screening. Uh, what's also interesting, as well as these more established techniques, if you like, where we're, we're truly trying to refine them, uh, there's also newer techniques, uh, analyzing DNA from fecal samples, looking at, for example, methylation of the septin 9 gene. And um, however, these haven't been proved to be as clinically sensitive as fit in population uh, screening. There's also some really interesting work being done in relation to volatile metabolites in breath, use of liquid biopsies and some of these we recommended as being approaches that, that should be addressed and looked at in more detail uh, because certainly we don't have it completely right at the moment. So it is important to look at a combination of existing approaches, but also maybe modulating those with some of the new approaches as well. Well, another priority area is pathology in terms of diagnosis, prognosis and prevention. So what are the key aspects of this topic to drive a personalised medicine approach based on tumour-specific molecular and biological characteristics over a more rigid anatomical-based scheme that we currently use? Um, I mean, this is one of my bugbears, and so I'm going to be fairly strong in this one. Um, we need a much more precise assessment of the pathology of colorectal cancer. This must include molecular pathology. I'm actually going to go as far as saying no molecular pathology, no personalised medicine. We know that there are established methodologies in immunohistochemistry, testing for mismatch repair, analysis of microsatellite instability, but we really need to bring in the new approaches, the transcriptomic approaches, digital pathology. We also need to use translational bioinformatics and machine learning to actually get the data because we're, we're sometimes generating quite large amounts of data with these omic approaches and we need to have appropriate um, informatics approaches and digital learning approaches to actually capture this information in a rigorous way and use it. Uh, we know, for example, in colorectal cancer, that gene expression profiling is culminated in a consensus molecular subtype. And However, we also know that this may be prone to intratumoral heterogeneity, and there's some really nice data that just come out uh, in a recent uh, number of papers in um, in a number of the key journals showing that there's a colorectal cancer intrinsic signature which may be more robust for prognostic and prediction and that's really important to look at that in more detail. I'm really keen on this idea of a morphomolecular taxonomy of, of, can, of cancer, of colorectal cancer in particular. It'll also allow us to look at precursor lesions, early stage diseases and the other thing is you know with this technology we must invest in people we must grow the talent pool. We must really skill up the pathology workforce and so that they're able to actually use these new technologies, use these new approaches, but also analyze them. So really, we need to see structured education programs in um, pathology and genomics and bioinformatics um, that actually can help in, in terms of really making the molecular pathology relevant in the clinical setting. So we next move on to the research priority area of treatment. Um, there's an increasing area of treatment choice to achieve curative intent. Um, what is the requirement 
to improve treatment choices and outcomes for patients across all stages of disease. I think we've continued to push the boundaries in relation to curative interventions, but I think certainly we, we still have a lot of work to do in terms of optimization. I think as well, we need to, you know, part of that approach, you know, in say, for example, metastatic or recurrent disease, we need to balance patients' expectations with treatment efficacy, but also health preserving benefit. And that includes looking at things like quality of life. So I think there needs to be much more of a providing the information, working with the patient and um, in relation to expectations. And uh, the other thing is, yes, certainly some of the technologies that are, are, are currently in development, we really need to look at what, what are the best ways to fast track these if they are going to be successful into the clinic. Uh, part of that obviously involves us identifying appropriate biomarkers that actually will direct us towards a personalized treatment approach, but also prevent over-treatment and improve treatment selection. And the other thing is, you know, we have to remember that surgery, radiotherapy, you know, are key uh, parts of our curative uh, regime. And we, we shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't just concentrate completely on personalized medicine. We also need to look at new approaches in relation to surgery, radiotherapy. And so we get sort of robust both clinical outcomes, but also clinical outcomes that are cost effective. And really, we've been looking in terms of stage four disease, obviously more aggressive approaches, liver resection, for example, ablative technologies, local regional treatments, these can be very effective. Um, and I suppose one of the things we're, we're really sort of struggling with at the moment in the context of stage four patient is, is really you know, what's the interplay between the tumor that's metastasizing and its microenvironment. And I think we need to get some more you know, sort of robust, both prognostic and predictive biomarkers that really allow the patient to receive the bespoke uh, treatment that's relevant to their particular disease course. So I'd now I'd like to ask you about the health and lifestyle considerations for those who live with a diagnosis of CRC and those in survivorship following curative treatment. Tell us more about this. I chaired the actual Living With and Beyond uh, Colorectal Cancer subgroup within the stakeholders that we talked about earlier during the podcast. It's really interesting and very important area. We really need to look at ways in which, obviously, we can deliver optimal treatments to enhance uh, colorectal cancer outcomes, but much more research-informed approaches to improve uh, health-related quality of life, to avoid health-related quality of life sequelae, to enhance survivorship. We now know more people are living with and beyond colorectal cancer, so we really need to look and see what are the you know the potential side effects and how do we address these. And this is also going to be increasingly relevant when we look at new approaches, like for example, immunotherapy. And um, obviously, immunotherapy is very exciting, although in colorectal cancer maybe not quite so because you know it, we find that in a lot of uh, different subtypes of colorectal cancer, it, it's not effective but it obviously is in, in some uh, patients with microcephaly and stable uh, colorectal cancer, but also thinking about what, you know, what are the potential side effects. Uh, it's, you know, it's important to remember that quite a high proportion of patients uh, who are treated for colorectal cancer by surgery or radiotherapy have you know, troublesome, sometimes embarrassing, potentially disabling symptoms, um, and you know, that can have a major negative impact on their daily living. Uh, we really need to find you know, what are the symptoms following treatment and develop viable solutions that either prevent it in the first place or manage it. And you know, what are, are there things like lifestyle interventions, increased physical activity, 
where her nutritions are relevant for the patient who's living with and beyond colorectal cancer as well. The paper ends by discussing several cross-section issues and these were highlighted across all priority areas, including communication amongst researchers and participants, data sharing and funding prioritisation. So what key points arose from these discussions? Yeah, I think one, one of the things that came out, as you said, it wasn't just in one particular subgroup, it was across a number of subgroups, and that's why we, we've sort of identified them as cross-cutting um, measures, two-way communication, I, I think key uh, we need to see patients as active participants, not passive recipients. Uh, and we really need to do real PPI, not just paying lip service to patients. That's so, so that's, if you like, the communication between the, the patient and the professional, the healthcare professional. Uh, the second area then was this lack of coordination of colorectal cancer research and also its funding. And that can lead to sort of fragmented efforts elucidating the biology of the disease and translating that into whether it be new preventative agents, screening tools, diagnostics, therapeutics, etc. Uh, one of the things that's come out of that is uh, an appetite to establish in the UK an annual national multidisciplinary uh, colorectal cancer research conference, uh, which brings together the entire community. Uh, data sharing is an area that I really have a lot of interest in and really want to look to try and drive it and we really need to look at you know developing bespoke uh, platforms that are tailored to the requirements of the community because we're really generating a very rich the richest source of data that we've ever developed uh, but the clinical epidemiological omic data on from patients with colorectal cancer but we really need to make sure that that data yields significant benefits for the patient first for the researcher and then for society and I think the other thing that we, we sort of highlighted was that as well as prioritizing research activity with the different research gaps that we identified and the solutions that we suggested, we really feel this provides, this paper provides an excellent opportunity for research funders, research councils, cancer charities, non-government organizations to really look at concentrating their funding in particular areas of focus where there's a defined research need, a need for collaboration, for example. Uh, one good example of this that's already in place, the MRC and CRUK came together to fund the Strahabide Medicine Program and colorectal cancer called ESCORT. And, and that's really allowed us to look at working together across the UK to develop predictive prognostic markers uh, in colorectal cancer. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thanks for a great discussion. I'd just like to thank Professor Mark Waller for joining me today. Thank you. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Um, for more information on this paper, please see the manuscript on the GUP website, gup.bmj.com. And remember, you can subscribe to the podcast regularly through iTunes and all major podcast platforms. Thanks very much.